I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. My name is Tim, and you are listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. So, to our listeners, I apologize about not getting an episode out last week. Um, and I think even last month, we may have missed an episode or two. And truth be told, I'm having a hard time putting out an episode every week. But go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes, and when we do put out an episode, uh, you'll definitely get it. And, uh, and then we're also going to be putting out Pastor Hines' podcast, The Protestant Witness, and I think Steve Matthews is probably going to take a break for about a month or so because he's pretty busy with work. But you can find Steve Matthews at the Trinity Foundation podcast because he's only doing that one once a month, and so he can, he can do that one pretty easily. Uh, they just wrapped up their fourth episode with Tom Geoditis. And I'm not really sure who he's got next in his lineup, but uh, I'm sure I'll find out because uh, Steve usually asks me to do the editing for that. So uh, check Steve out there. Um, Hopefully he'll be back soon with Radio Lux Lucid. Uh, I know there's a lot of interesting topics that I really want him to cover. Uh, So we'll be looking forward to him coming back. Um, As far as Semper Reformanda Radio, I'm pretty busy at work and I'm pretty busy at home. And my goal is to get an episode out every week, but right now, uh, Carlos isn't able to help me with the podcast because he and his wife just had the baby, and at the same time, Carlos's dad is very, very sick. He has a cirrhosis of the liver, and I asked Carlos if I could just, you know, mention this, so that way people know what's going on. He's not um, bailing on me, but... Uh, His dad was recently put on hospice, and he probably doesn't have very much time left. And uh, it's been a burden on his family. His mom had to quit work to take care of his dad full-time. His sister lives out of town, and I know that she would love to be here if she could. She travels into town every opportunity that she gets. But um, it's just it's a very difficult situation. And um, Carlos had told me that his dad was doing was doing poorly, and I, I I didn't realize how bad he was until I'd actually seen him. And uh, so our our thoughts and our prayers are with Carlos and his family. Um, and you know 
we we covet your prayers if you if you feel led to pray for Carlos uh, please please do that so Carlos has basically told me that he will commit to finishing his article he said it's like 99% done uh, he's just polishing it up his article uh, part two on the the justification issue with John Piper and then um, we talked maybe about doing a joint podcast with the guys from the Reformed Brotherhood. So he has left that open. And then he left open for me to do an interview with him about his article that he's publishing. Because I, I do believe that his article will be published on the Trinity Foundation as well. So that's where we're at. And uh, we do want to get an episode out every week. But unfortunately, things come up like this and, and we're just not able to do it. But uh, today, what I wanted to talk about, I wanted to go over two passages of Scripture that I think a lot of times are misunderstood within Protestant evangelical churches. The first one is Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and the second one is James 2, verse 19. And uh, let's go ahead and read Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I had a friend by the name of David. He's a really good guy. He goes to church with me. Send me a sermon by another pastor, another local pastor who preached on this sermon. And David was saying, you know, I'm... I was a little concerned about some of the stuff that he said. It just seemed a little bit off. And uh, he asked me to review the sermon. And I said, sure. And I said, you know, let me let me just go ahead and do it on the podcast. Because this seems to be a pretty big... Um, mis- it seems to be a pretty common mistake that is made a lot. Um, I, re- I heard about a year or two ago, I heard a friend actually preach on this passage of Scripture... And the question is, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? When Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The question for today is, what does it mean to be doing the will of the Father? And uh, my friend, when he preached this, uh, he actually said that doing the will of the Father meant keeping the Ten Commandments. And I think that if we interpret it that way, we're going to have some issues. We're going to have some problems. So here's what I want to do. I don't want to listen to the whole sermon because I, I think this pastor said some some good things in the sermon, but I do want to highlight the parts where he interprets what does it mean to do the will of the Father. So let's just do this. Let's go ahead and play those parts. We are going to link up the entire sermon. I definitely encourage our listeners to listen to the whole thing. Um, I'm not taking them out of context. Um, We're just going to focus on this one area, okay? Uh, So let's go ahead and play this sermon, and then we'll just critique it as we go. And then after that, we can get into James chapter 2, verse 19. Now, in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not enough to just proclaim with your lips that Jesus is Lord, Lord. 
One's final destiny is not determined by what you say. It's determined by what you do. Okay, let me just go ahead and stop it right there. That's the problem, I think. Your eternal destiny is not determined by what you say or what you do. Your eternal destiny is determined by whether or not you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when I first heard this, this was sort of at the beginning of the sermon. When I first heard this, I wanted to be charitable and, and think, well, maybe he means, did you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, maybe maybe that's what he means by it's determined by what you do. Uh, but unfortunately, I think the way that he interprets it, uh, if I'm understanding him correctly, and it seems to be pretty clear at the end of the sermon, he's uh, equating doing the will of the Father with obedience. And that is a problem. That's pretty much what Roman Catholicism would teach. And what's interesting is this, I know that this pastor would affirm justification by faith alone, and I know that he would affirm that we're saved by faith alone. So it's it's interesting when I hear uh, Protestant evangelical pastors or teachers slip up in this way. And, and you can ask somebody, when you die, are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? And their answer is very telling because if, if they say, well, I'm going to go to heaven and you ask why, well, because I do this or because I do that and, you know, I go to church and I, I lived a life of obedience, um, all of those things are really showing that the person has a different gospel. They're trusting in something else. They're believing in something else. And that's why it's very troubling, because I think that pastors need to consider this. I think that pastors need to consider that people just naturally have a tendency to forfeit the gospel in favor of something else. And this is why we have to constantly beat the gospel into our heads. We have to constantly beat the gospel into our minds, because we just sometimes we, we drift in our thinking in that way. And so this is why I think that this, this mistake is problematic because people are going to hear this and they're going to think of a works-based righteousness. So let's go ahead and, and play uh, another clip. It's towards the end where he speaks on this verse uh, and doing the will of the Father. And it becomes a little bit more clear as to what he's talking about. So let's go ahead and play that second clip. Not only is a bare profession of faith insufficient for saving the soul, but it's an insult to Christ himself. How can we call him Lord, Lord, when we still go around living our lives for ourselves? It's obedience which marks men and women as disciples, and that's what distinguishes them from being pawns of Satan. So if you're going to make a profession of faith, it's critical to understand that Jesus has to be the one that you come to live your life for. Okay, that was actually the end of the first clip. Uh, I cut it off short, uh, but let's go ahead and listen to the second clip at the end of the sermon. So I want to explain to you how you can have assurance of true salvation. And here's what I hope you have heard from God's word today. You must do the will of the Father. And what is his will? Obedience. Okay, and so there he makes it clear that he's equating 
doing the will of the Father with obedience. And I think that this is the problem. Let's, uh, let's continue. Your final destiny is not determined by what you say. It's determined by what you do. Okay, and he says it again, uh, and this is the problem. Your final destiny is not determined by what you do in the sense of obedience. It's determined by, uh, it's determined by whether or not you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, if you do believe, then you will have everlasting life. If you don't, then you'll perish in a lake of fire. But when he equates doing the will of the Father with obedience, and then he says that your eternal destiny is not determined by what you say, it's determined by what you do, I think that we have a problem. But let's, uh, let's continue. You aren't a Christian just because you say you are. Amen, amen, amen. He, that is absolutely right. You're not a Christian just simply because you say you are. This is exactly what the book of James chapter 2 verses 14 addresses. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Can that faith save him? So he hits the nail right on the head and then immediately he's about to go wayward. So let's listen. You're a Christian when you live out your faith by living a life of faith and obedience to God's will. No, I would say you're a Christian when you believe the gospel. And when you believe the gospel and when you're a Christian, you will obey. So I, I don't think that you're a Christian when you obey. Uh, I think that when you're a Christian, you will obey. So I think that's a little bit backwards. Uh, again, I think that it's problematic that he's equating doing the will of the Father with obedience because if we were to read that passage that way, then, and essentially that's the way Rome reads that passage. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, but he who obeys my Father. Um, none of us have obeyed. None of us have met that standard, and so there has to be something else to this. Now, I've addressed this passage of Scripture in a message that I gave a, a long time ago uh, as, as to whether or not Roman Catholics are Christians. I think it was episode... No, I'm not even going to try. I don't remember what episode it was, but it was, uh, Are Roman Catholics Saved? And... I answered in the negative. They're not saved. If you are a Roman Catholic, then you're not a Christian. And I know that some people say, I know a Roman Catholic who's a Christian. Well, if you do, then then you know a professing Roman Catholic who's a Christian. Um, but let's not forget that Rome anathematized the gospel and anathematized anybody who believes the gospel. So if you are a Christian, it's because you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to which Rome has anathematized you, so you, technically, legitimately, you're really not a Roman Catholic. And it's as simple as that. So, you can go back and listen to that episode, Are Roman Catholics Saved? That's the title of the episode. But here's what I want to do. There's an outstanding sermon by the late John Robbins on this very issue. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to play a couple of clips from this sermon, and uh, and then we'll come back and we'll tackle James chapter 2, verse 19. So, stick with us. In verse 21, he begins, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In this passage, these three verses are a frequently misunderstood passage of Scripture. At first glance, Christ seems to be teaching salvation by works. He contrasts those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not work, or apparently do not work, with those who say, or those who, he says, do the will of my Father in heaven. That's the superficial reading of this passage. That's what it seems to say. The 1994 Catechism of the uh, Roman Catholic Church cites this very verse to support its view that, and I quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, each one of us should hope with the grace of God to persevere to the end and to obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for the good works accomplished with the grace of Christ. That's a quote from the Catholic Catechism 1994. Uh, even some non-Catholics have the same understanding of this passage. They refer to Christ's message as a message of works here. But if you look at that passage a little bit more closely, as we intend to do this morning, uh, perhaps we'll see something slightly different. It's, it appears to say, it appears to contrast here in this verse, people who say, Lord, Lord, but do not obey or do not do any works with those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And the warning is that Christ offers or appears to be here is that not everyone who says these words, not everyone who acknowledges Christ as Lord uh, will go to heaven but only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. And that, of course, seems to contradict uh, other passages of Scripture in which simple belief, simple faith is offered as the way of salvation. Uh, he mentions doing in verse 21 here. If you contrast that with Acts 16.31, for example, where the statement is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Or you contrast it with Romans chapter 3, verse 28. A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And Romans 4, 5, uh, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So there seems to be perhaps a difficulty in understanding what Christ is saying in verse 21, but I trust it won't last long. But we are faced with the immediate question here, is Christ teaching legalism? And I'm using legalism in the strict sense. Is he teaching salvation by obedience to law or salvation by works? Is that what he's teaching? If so, then we have a problem with other passages of Scripture which teach that salvation is through faith alone. But there's still that nagging question. What does verse 21 mean? Christ had said back in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
What does the phrase doing the Father's will mean if it doesn't mean works? What does this phrase mean if it doesn't mean works? It certainly appears to be works. He who does the will rather than he who says. Well, Christ used the phrase and similar phrases as a synonym for belief. Look at John 6.40. Look at John 6.40. This is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. That's the will of the Father. John 6:28 and 29. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. At another point when Jesus' mother and brothers were desiring to see him, he ignores them. Matthew 12:50 says, "Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother." He's not suggesting that they didn't do the Father's will and that they did no works, but whoever believes in him is my mother and my brother and my sister. Hello, this is Tom Juditis, President of the Trinity Foundation. Thank you for listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. For more information on the Trinity Foundation, please visit our website at www.trinityfoundation.org. There you can read, download, and or print over 300 articles or listen to over 200 MP3 audio lectures and check out our over 65 titles of books and other media. And if you are between the ages of 16 through 25, you can enter our 2018 Christian Worldview Essay Contest on the topic of the book, The Emperor Has No Clothes, Richard B. Gaffin Jr.'s Doctrine of Justification, by author Stephen Cunha. Thank you, and remember, the Bible alone is the Word of God. All right, I want to say thank you to Tom for that. Um, we love the Trinity Foundation, and be sure to enter the essay contest if you you are in the age range because you could win some money and you're definitely going to uh, learn a lot about the justification controversy. Uh, and then I also want to say a big thanks to Colleen Sharp. I know that she gave Thorn Crown Ministries a, a shout out. And I know that because I listened to Theology Gals. That is Colleen's podcast, Theology Gals. I am a guy who listens to a podcast by women for women. But I have a wife and I have to cover my wife. And so <laughs> my wife listens to Theology Gals. And uh, that's my excuse because uh, Colleen is pretty solid. She's got some great stuff. She's a Presbyterian. And uh, I've always appreciated Colleen's uh, podcast. And uh, I think um, I think Ashley Glassick is her... Well, I know that Ashley Glassick is her co-host. I think she's about to have a baby, so she might be taking a little vacay right now, but uh, be sure to check them out. I don't even know why I'm plugging them, because they've got a huge following. They've got a lot of listeners, but 
Maybe you just got on the internet yesterday and you found us and you haven't heard them. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that happened. So uh, be sure to check them out. And big thanks to Colleen. Um, so let's get into part two. I know that a lot of people might not agree with me on this topic because I'm going to take an explicitly Clarkian view here. Um, we're going to talk about James 2.19, but we're also going to talk about what is faith? What is uh, faith by definition? And uh, is James 2.19 denigrating intellectual assent to understood propositions? So I want to submit that I, I think a lot of Protestant evangelicals, because they have a wrong definition of faith, I think that they get passages like James 2.19 wrong. So let's go ahead and read James 2.19. Uh, this is the passage that is often referenced with uh, discussions about mere intellectual assent or bare intellectual assent. It's not enough to just give bare intellectual assent. You really, really have to trust in Jesus. So James 2.19 reads, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And of course, uh, the argument is that uh, see, even the demons believe. Believing's not enough. You have to, you have to really trust, or you really have to commit your life. And I think that uh, their definition of faith goes hand in hand with how they interpret this passage of scripture. So to get into this, I wanted to do this. I wanted to read from a book titled The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. Now, this is a really good book. I think it's by William Webster. This is a really good book. I don't want to steer you away from this book, but I think that the author makes a very common mistake with this issue. Uh, so let's go ahead and read on page 133, I think. Let me, let me pull it up. Yeah, 133 and 134. The chapter of the title is Faith and Justification. Okay, we read... The scriptures teach us that God communicates saving grace to those who believe. Faith is foundational to true Christianity, and it involves knowledge, assent, trust, and commitment. The object of faith is always God himself, and its foundation is the word of God. For faith to be truly biblical, it must involve more than just the assent of the mind to the objective truth about God, Christ, and salvation. Knowledge is vital, but it must always lead to to trust and commitment to God as a person. So let's just stop right there and talk about this. I think that it's really important to point out here that the author intends to argue for biblical faith. He said it twice. But rather than just getting his view directly from the Bible, he instead accepts the Latin threefold definition of faith, which is notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. And I'll just point out here that the Bible was not written in Latin. He writes, faith is foundational, and it involves knowledge, which is notitia, assent, which is a census, and trust or commitment, which is how people usually translate fiducia. And again, the Bible was not written in Latin, so I think that this is going to cause a problem. Luke Miner, in his article recently published on the, on the Trinity Foundation, titled, What is it to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? He also points this out. He writes, Many English-speaking theologians have used this threefold distinction and have variously described what they take to be the extra element of faith under the title of fiducia, whether that be commitment, 
obedience, repentance, resting, trust, transformation. So this author actually translated it into two different ways, commitment and trust, which Luke Minor points out, and he adds some other ways in which it's been translated. And I think that Luke is correct, and obviously this author has uh, understood fiducia to mean trust and commitment. Now, I'm going to submit this, and you may not see why at first, but I think that this is a problem. And again, it, it may not seem clear as to why that is at first. So we're going to get into it, just hang in there. Uh, because I, I think that people want to advocate for a personal trust in Jesus Christ. And, and I don't want people to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, well, you shouldn't trust in Jesus Christ. Obviously, I'm a Christian. I think that you should trust in Jesus Christ. But what I'm going to argue is that trust is fundamentally no different from belief, which is, by definition, understanding with assent. And I know that it can be difficult to let go of some of these things because we're so conditioned in the way that we, we talk as Christians. But I think that if we stress trust and commitment as some extra psychological element of faith, while at the same time denigrating intellectual assent to understood propositions, then I think that we're going to make mistakes. And um, I would suggest that anytime we get our ideas for biblical concepts, but we don't derive them from the Bible, we're probably going to get into trouble. And we see this happen all the time uh, with other doctrines, uh, the Trinity, for example. So to illustrate this, I just wanted to play a little clip from a YouTube channel, The Lutheran Satire. They've got some pretty funny videos. I'm not a Lutheran, but they've got some pretty funny videos. And uh, this video is titled The Trinity Explained. So let me just play this to illustrate the problem. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat oh patrick come on patrick that's arianism patrick arianism yes arianism patrick a theology which states that christ and the holy spirit are creations of the father and not one in nature with him exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself but are merely creations of the star that's a bad analogy patrick you're the worst patrick all right sorry the trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. 
partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. So what do you guys do for a living? Well, we come from a long line of snake farmers, Patrick, but truth be told, business has been real bad lately. Oh. Yeah, about that. Alright, so that was the Lutheran Satire YouTube channel. Again, the title of that one is The Trinity Explained. Uh, and if you, it's much funnier if you, if you go and you actually listen to it. So we'll put the link up in the show notes. But I think it illustrates for us why we shouldn't try to develop our ideas for biblical concepts without deriving them explicitly from Scripture. Okay, so what is the problem here with this Latin threefold distinction of faith? Well, Clark writes in What is Saving Faith on page 47, and you can find this book at the Trinity Foundation. He writes, Quote, the crux of the difficulty with the popular analysis of faith into notitia, understanding, assensus, assent, and fiducia, trust, is that fiducia comes from the same root as fide, or faith. Hence, this popular analysis is reduced to the obviously absurd definition that faith consists of understanding, assent, and faith. Something better than this tautology must be found. Close quote. So, Fiducia is the extra psychological element that many Protestants add to faith, which Clark tirelessly refuted as confused, meaningless, and redundant. The author of the book, The Church of Rome, at the Bar of History, he wrote, For faith to be truly biblical, it must involve more than just the assent of the mind to the objective truth about God, Christ, and salvation. Well, that is the biblical view of faith. And to add something more to that is just going to get us into trouble. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. I think how, how, this, uh, how the author sort of misses the mark. Um, and let me point this out. I think that what has happened is that many theologians have imposed a wrong view of faith onto the scriptures. And that is what is causing them to misunderstand passages like James 2.19. Uh, throughout many of his writings, Clark actually emphasized faith as an important doctrine. He 
clarified it biblically. He uh, defined what it meant. He refuted deficient views. And I would go as far as to say that Clark's treatment of faith is probably one of his major theological contributions to our understanding of the faith. Uh, Clark's definition of faith is simple. It's biblical. Clark defined faith this way. He writes, Faith, by definition, is assent to understood propositions. Not all cases of assent, even assent to biblical propositions, are saving faith, but all saving faith is assent to one or more biblical propositions. Um, so let's just go ahead and continue. I, I wholeheartedly agree with Clark. Let's just go ahead and continue with the, the book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. On the next page, on page one, 134, the author writes, quote, Biblical faith always produces a life characterized by love, holiness, and good works. Yeah, that's, that's true. These works do not save us, but equally, the epistle of James warns us against a faith which is empty and vain. That is, one that acknowledges the objective facts of God, Christ, and salvation to be true, but negates or neglects the essential elements of trust and commitment. The demons believe in that sense, but they perish. Intellectual assent alone is empty, James argues. Here the author wants to convey the close quote, sorry. Uh, here the author wants to convey the idea that intellectual assent or understanding with assent is empty and vain, according to James, and that it is not enough to just acknowledge the objective facts of God, Christ, and salvation to be true, but that we must also have the additional and essential, as he claims, essential elements of trust and commitment. So again, let me just point out that to acknowledge the objective facts of God, Christ, and salvation to be true is what saving faith entails, and that is not what James is arguing against. James is not denigrating intellectual assent to understood propositions as empty and vain. Faith is simply understanding with assent. So let's let's get into this a little bit. Let's go to James chapter 2 and let's start in verse 14. So that way we can get an idea of what James is actually trying to address. In verse 14, it, it begins, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So it's clear right here in this verse that James is addressing the issue of false religious piety or hypocrisy because he's addressing people who claim to have faith uh, and they, they actually don't have faith. They say that they have faith, but they don't. And he's asking, can that faith, can that profession of faith save them? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, we continue in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So listen to, listen to what James is, is actually saying. That person says to their brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled. Uh, but they don't actually do anything to help them. In other words, they're saying to them, I really want for you to be warm and filled. I really want for you to have a nice meal and have a blanket. Uh, that's my deepest desire for you. And then it's as if they just turn around and walk away from them and do nothing. Well, what's that person going to think? That person's going to look at them and say, well, you're just saying that. You don't actually 
that's not actually what you want. That's not actually how you feel. That's not actually what's, what's inside of you. You're just making a profession here. And that is the issue that James is trying to address, the issue of hypocrisy, which is expressed in a false profession of faith. So let's continue. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And here it is important to point out that this demonstration of faith is before men, here and now, not before God at the final judgment so that you can get into heaven and be acquitted. Uh, Clark points this out in What is Saving Faith on page 142. He writes, uh, quote, If a man says he has faith but does not have works, we tend to conclude that he has no faith. Conduct, particularly habitual conduct, is the best criterion fallible men have for judging hypocrisy. What a man believes really believes, even if he says the contrary will show in his living. So the issue James is addressing, again, is a false religious piety. This is why he makes the point in verse 19 about the demons. In verse 19, he writes, You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. This verse is not a charge against intellectual assent to understood propositions of the gospel. It is a charge against false religious piety. These are the people that will tell you, yeah, I believe in God, and yeah, you know, I, I you know, I'm religious, um, yet they live in a way that would show that they don't. They live hypocritically. And they're exposed as hypocrites despite the fact that they claim to have faith, despite the fact that they often make lofty, pious religious statements. This echoes what John the Baptist uh, did when he rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees when they came to his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. In that passage we read, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Man, John the Baptist sounds mean by today's standards. Verse 8, he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So both James and John the Baptist are actually speaking to the same issue. They were addressing people who would make religious claims or proclamations, and they were calling them out as hypocrites because of their conduct of living. And we hear this all the time in today's world. Well, I'm a Christian because I go to church. But let's let's get back to James 2.19. How is it that demons assenting to the truth that there is one God invalidates saving faith as believing, which is understanding and agreeing with the gospel. First, we should point out that the demons are said to believe in monotheism, not the gospel. And you'll notice how uh, William Webster tacked on um, God, Jesus, and salvation when he referenced James 2.19. James 2.19 says nothing about salvation, nothing about the gospel, nothing about Jesus. So we need to point out that the demons are said to believe in monotheism, not the gospel, and whether or not the demons believed in the gospel or not is irrelevant because Christ only died for fallen men. He did not take on the likeness of demons or fallen angels. Uh, he took on the likeness of men. He stood in the place of man. 
So it's important to point out that the verse only says that the demons believed in one God, not that they believed in the gospel. And Clark refutes this misapplication of James 2.19 repeatedly. And what is saving faith on page 152? He writes, the argument here is that since the devil's assent and true believers also assent, something other than assent is needed for saving faith. Example, trust or uh, trust or commitment, which is how they translate fiducia. This is a logical blunder. The text says the devils believe in monotheism. Why cannot the difference between the devils and Christians be the different propositions believed rather than the psychological element of faith? This assumes a different psychology is needed. It is better to say that a different object of belief is needed. And I wholeheartedly agree with him. On page 154, he continues, It is illogical to conclude that belief is not assent just because belief in monotheism does not save. The clear inference is that if belief in monotheism does not save, then one ought to believe something else in addition. Not assent, but monotheism is inadequate. James mentions only belief in one God. That's all James mentions. He mentions monotheism. But monotheism is not saving belief because it is not about Jesus or his work. Uh, this misrepresentation of James is actually a denial of the power of the gospel. As John Robbins notes in his article, uh, in which he addresses some things that R.C. Sproul said, and I love R.C. Sproul, but I think that R.C. Sproul got this wrong. The article is titled R.C. Sproul on Saving Faith, and uh, Sproul writes, or Sproul uh, is recounted as, as saying, According to James, even if I am aware of the work of Jesus, convinced intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he died on the cross for my sins, and that he rose from the dead, I would at that point qualify to be a demon. So here he's hearkening back to James 2.19. Uh, and Robbins responds thus, The belief that Sproul says, quote, qualifies him to be a demon, close quote, is according to the Holy Spirit, the gospel. Quote, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 1 through 4. Robbins continues, Paul says these propositions are the gospel, and that by them you are saved. To the Romans he wrote, quote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16-17. Sproul, contradicting Paul, says that these propositions qualify anyone who believes them to be a demon. I think John Robbins was right here to point this out. And as I said before, this is a very common misunderstanding. So, um, yeah, we're not, we're not trying to pick on R.C. Sproul. Um... I think John Robbins and R.C. Sproul have both gone in glory to be with the Lord. But let's get back to the book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, because this is the book that will continue to serve as our main example for today's episode. Uh, the author continues on page 134. Intellectual assent alone is empty, James argues. It does not save, for it does not bring a person into union with the source of salvation. Where there is true union with Christ, there will be a transformed life as evidence 
of that union, where there is mere intellectual assent divorced from true trust and commitment, there may be orthodox belief, but no life of true holiness and love, for the heart has not been sanctified to God and regenerated. Okay, so there are so many problems with this. It's I think it's difficult to know where to begin. Let me let me scroll up here. Um, okay, so l- let me start here. It's completely wrong to suggest that in a person that there may be orthodox belief or that, that there is orthodox belief, which he qualified earlier as assenting of the mind to the objective truths about God, Christ, and salvation. Uh, it's it's completely wrong to suggest that that might be in a person, but that there can be no life of holiness and love. Let me read it again. There may be orthodox belief, but no life of holy of true holiness and love, for the heart has not been sanctified to God and regenerated. So the question that I have here is, is it possible for one to believe the truth of the gospel and not be regenerated? Or to put it another way, is it possible for an unregenerate man to believe the gospel? I think those are, those are contradictions. Uh, the inevitable conclusion of this would mean that some believers would end up in hell. If, they, if you can have orthodox belief about Christ, salvation, God, and not be regenerated. Uh, the author also suggests that one can have intellectual assent that is divorced from trust. Well, again, faith by definition is understanding with assent, and this is precisely what it means to believe. The words belief and faith are derived from the same Greek word in the New, in the New Testament, uh, which is pistis, and are used interchangeably. Luke Minor points this out in his article, quote, Bible translations will commonly use faith in place of belief or have faith in place of believe. Um, and we're going to link up uh, his article as well, uh, so that way you can go through it. Um, so, it is also let me let me go back to the to the paragraph. I think that it's also completely wrong to suggest that one can have intellectual assent that is divorced from trust. This is because for one to believe is to give intellectual assent and to believe is to trust. John Robbins also corrected this mistake and pointed out that to use the words believe and trust interchangeably he, he wrote, it's good English and sound theology because they're synonyms. Robbins notes, quote, belief, that is to say faith, there's only one word in the New Testament for belief, that's pistis, and trust are the same. Are the same. They are synonyms. If you believe what a person says, you trust him. If you trust a person, you believe what he says. If you have faith in him, you believe what he says, and you trust his words. And this is important because splitting it up into three parts the third part being trust or commitment, depends on denying that belief and trust are the same thing. So, as I said before, there's, there were a lot of things wrong with this. The, another thing that the author um, did was he made a distinction between the head and the heart. He, he wrote, There may be orthodox belief, but the heart has not been sanctified to God and regenerated. Again, John Robbins corrects this misunderstanding for us. He writes, Quote, in the Bible, there is no distinction between the heart and the head or the mind. When God created man, he made two things, 
his body and his mind. See Genesis 2. God breathed into the body of dirt. The man became a living soul. It is man's mind that is the image, the breath of God. Mind, soul, heart, spirit are not different parts of man. They are synonyms. The Bible does not teach 19th century faculty psychology. It teaches that man is a unitary creature. It is the heart, the mind of man that thinks, reasons, plans, wills, remembers, and suffers. Man is a unitary creature, not several distinct faculties. Look up the verses on the heart and the head. Gordon Clark did so, and he published the results in his book, Religion, Reason, and Revelation, 45 years ago. Theologians, pastors, and seminary professors have been ignoring his analysis of hundreds of verses ever since. So, this account of saving faith is wrong. I want to suggest that the, the author's account of saving faith in the book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, I think is wrong, because he does not derive his view directly from the Bible, nor does he base it on the biblical view of man. But let's go ahead and continue with the book. Um, on the same page, he writes, In what sense is the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on faith inconsistent with the biblical teaching? To understand this, we must understand the teaching of Thomas Aquinas, for it is his conception of faith which has become normative. Okay, so let me just go ahead and interject here um, that this is not at all true. Uh, the view that is normative is the view that the author is actually taking. That That is the view of the threefold distinction of faith. Uh, but the author continues, In his Summa Theologica, Aquinas gives an in-depth description of the nature of faith. His conception could be fairly summed up in the following way. Faith means assent of the intellect to that which is believed. Faith is an assent to the truth by which he understood all the dogmas of the church. Otherwise, faith is lacking. The scriptures are the foundation, but the church alone is adequate to determine the correct interpretation of the scriptures. Faith for Aquinas, for the Roman Catholic Church, is thus viewed in purely intellectual terms. While related to the truth of scripture, it is primarily centered on the, on the church itself. The major component of commitment and trust in the person of Christ himself is missing. Instead, faith is belief in the teachings of the church. So the author here, uh, William Webster, says that for Aquinas, faith means the assent of the intellect to that which is believed. And Clark would appear to agree with Thomas Aquinas's view because Clark writes, quote, faith for Thomas is assent to an understood proposition, and to that extent we agree. That was Clark. So he agreed with Aquinas. On this, on this issue. But the author then says that, quote, faith for Aquinas for the Roman Catholic Church is thus viewed in purely intellectual terms. And this is just simply not true. It's worth noting that Aquinas defended the Romish view of implicit faith, which is an anti-intellectual concept of faith. Implicit faith is the idea that a person may accept whatever the church teaches without actually knowing it or understanding it. And Clark points out for us that, quote, Protestantism has always rejected this proposition as absurd. It should be clear that no one can believe what he does not know or understand. And that's on page 129, of, or that's on page 29 of what is saving faith. So it's wrong to suggest that Rome, that for Rome, uh, faith is viewed in purely intellectual terms. That's not true. 
But I want to go back to something else in the paragraph that is, I think, a little bit confused. Uh, according to the author, the major difference between Rome and us is this third psychological element of faith, um, of commitment and trust. The problem, then, rests in how we see faith. For Rome, it is purely intellectual assent, but they're missing this major component of faith, which is trust and commitment in, in the person of Jesus Christ himself. I would argue, however, contrary to, to this view, I would argue that the major difference is not the fact that they're missing this third psychological element of faith, which is a tautology, but rather that the major difference is in the propositions believed. They believe a different gospel. To suggest that it's anything but the content of what is believed, uh, that is the content to which one gives intellectual assent, is to suggest that if they had this extra third element of trust, then they would actually be okay. Well, we should stop here and, and just let's pause on this uh, for a minute to think about this. Let's go ahead and grant them this third major component of trust. What are they going to be trusting in? Well, they're going to be trusting in something else. There, and, and the author says that the major component of trust and commitment in the person of Jesus Christ is missing. Well, you can't trust in the person of Jesus Christ unless you're trusting in the right teaching, in the right doctrine. The author writes, uh, again, um, let me just read this, the major component of commitment and trust in the, in the person of Christ himself is missing. Instead, faith is belief in the teaching of the church. And so let me point this out again. The problem is not that they're missing the major components of trust and commitment, but rather the problem is that faith, uh, that their faith is in the teachings of the church and the teachings of the church blatantly contradict the Bible. The problem rests not in the psychological third element, but the problem rests entirely in the propositions to which they give intellectual assent. So the author continues, uh, Yet the early church did not have this limited conception of faith. In the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, for example, the basic biblical elements of faith were emphasized. The object of faith was not truth as an end in of itself, nor the church, but the persons of the Father and the Son. And uh, let me skip down to the next paragraph uh, so I can just wrap this up. He says, Faith was reduced to knowledge and assent to doctrine, especially the doctrine related to the Trinity and to Christ. The object of faith was no longer God and Christ as persons, but rather the truths about God and Christ. Okay, again, this is, I think, really confused. And we need to be careful here because it was the liberals who contended that we must believe in a person, not a doctrine. It should be emphatically noted here that the objects of faith cannot be God and Christ as persons without or separate from the truths about God and Christ. And to make the truths about God and Christ the object of faith is to necessarily make the persons of God and Christ the object of faith. Clark rightly points out on page 143 of What is Saving Faith, quote, 
The object of belief is not a person without words, but definitely the words of a person. There is no antithesis between believing Jesus as a person and believing what he says. And John Robbins also corrected this mistake. Uh, he writes, in literary usage, one may say that one believes a person, but this means that one believes what the person says. The immediate and proper object of belief or faith is a truth or falsehood, if you believe in something that's false, a meaning, the intellectual content of some words, and this intellectual content is in logic called a proposition. To believe a person means precisely to believe what he says. So Robbins points out for us that to trust a person is to believe what he says, and that there is no such thing as a personal trust that is different from or better than understanding and believing his words. And he bases this, uh, this in the clear teaching of Scripture. So I'm going to quote Robbins again. Robbins uh, begins by quoting John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. It reads, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. So notice that Jesus acknowledges that in Moses you trust, in a person you trust. For if you believe Moses, but they didn't believe Moses. This is the problem. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And again, that's John 5, 45 through 47. Robbins writes, Jesus makes it clear by using the phrases in opposition and interchangeably that believing Moses means believing his writings and that believing me means believing my words. The apostate Jews profess a personal trust in Moses, even though they did not believe his writings. They praised the prophets, decorated their tombs, and did not assent to their doctrines. The apostate Jews, like many contemporary theologians, tried to separate persons from propositions. They trusted Moses, but they did not believe his writings. They praised Moses and refused to assent to his propositions. For that refusal to assent to Moses' words, they were damned. And uh, this is why I think that it's absurd and irrational to argue that the object of our faith can be God in Christ as persons, but without or distinct from the truths about God and Christ. The problem was not that the objects of, of faith had shifted from a person to a truth about the person, but rather that the truth about God and Jesus were being rejected and denied. They, they were doing the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. They were professing to believe in a person, but rejecting that person's words. And this is why I think that the author gets this precisely backwards. And, and let me just point this out as well. I, this is why I think that Roman Catholic priests are modern-day Pharisees. They have exalted their own traditions and have not believed Moses or the prophets, uh, and they have not believed Jesus. Uh, the difference is not in the extra-psychological element of faith, which turns out, again, to be useless on account of it being redundant to tautology, but rather the differences in what they believe. They don't actually believe what Jesus said. They profess to believe in Jesus. They profess to believe in the person of Christ, but they don't actually believe his doctrine. So now we come to the obvious charge of antinomianism. And this is really interesting because when we talk about this, uh, 
I'm going to sound like a free grace or, or the, the free grace movement. I think that a lot of the free grace movement actually gets the definition of faith right. But the problem is, is that they make an invalid inference and think that they, they think that a person can live like the devil, live like an unregenerate. And what they've essentially done is they've neglected the doctrine of regeneration. So I'm going to point you to the Protestant witness. The Protestant witness, uh, I'm going to upload a, an outstanding message by Pastor Patrick Hines on the doctrine of regeneration, because I don't think that the answer to the antinomianism, which was propagated by the free grace movement, I don't think that the answer is, well, you need to make Jesus your Lord and you really need to trust and you really need to commit your life. And I don't think that that's the answer. I think that the answer is simple. It's just the doctrine of regeneration. And to close out, let me just go ahead and read uh, from Robbins's article. He says, according to the scriptures, faith and belief are the same, pistis, and saving faith is assent to the truth of the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. So again, I want to say thank you. Uh, be sure to check out Pastor Hines's episode on regeneration. I believe that is the answer to address the invalid inferences made by the free gracers who allowed for antinomianism. So with that, we will check everybody next time. God bless.